podcast about disasters and the music they make us listen to. I'm Peter, and I'm here with my co-host, Lee. Hi. And you're joining us for a Tragedy Tuesday, our mini-episodes about tragedies that aren't usually so mini. Yeah. Um, and today, Lee's going to tell us a story. So, Lee, take it away. Hello, everyone. Welcome to... Hi, Lee. Hi. This week's Tragedy Tuesday. Um, I say this every week, but I'll say it again. Mm-hmm. I am the musically obsessed. Well, I guess we're both musically obsessed. Sure, but, but you know, one of us has. One, one of us, us is an encyclopedia. <laughs> <laughs> so my, it's a problem. My, my, my contributions uh, so far have been musical, and this one is no different. Awesome. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about a certain record label mm-hmm. that in many ways was a disaster, but it was also a disaster that got things done. All right. So giving rise to a number of bands yep. who would become sort of legendary, right. uh, Joy Division. Oh. New Order. Hey. And, uh. Those are two bands that I've heard of. There you go. <laughs> and also contributed directly to a certain musical movement, which we'll get into, uh, later. Ooh, teaser. So I'm talking about factory records. Okay. Uh, the little disaster that could mm. until they couldn't. Mm. <laughs> so <laughs> the theme a... <laughs> here is sort of, uh, a lot of success for all involved, not so much for the label themselves. So that's kind of the, the running, well, the running gag. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> so we'll get into it. So, Can't uh, wait. Yeah. <laughs> so factory records was started in 1978 okay. by Tony Wilson mm-hmm. and Alan Erasmus okay. in Manchester, England. Okay. And um, not unlike, say, uh, Discord Records mm-hmm. uh, in DC, very, uh, Factory was very much about bigging up Manchester. Okay. Uh, not so much like Discord, I think, exclusively only signed and promoted DC area bands. That wasn't right. sort of the rule with uh, Factory, but they, I think they really were out to show... People that, yeah. you know, you didn't have to come from London or gotcha. New York or whatever mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. you know, there's good music in this little northern British yeah, yeah, yeah. city. Totally. So, um, admirable. Admirable. Yeah. Well done. Uh, <laughs> Alan Erasmus, uh, he was an actor at the time. Yeah. He, he land minor roles in the 70s okay. on British TV. Yeah. Um, Tony Wilson is really who we're going to focus on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Tony Wilson, born in February 20th, 1950. Okay. Uh, also had, at the time, television career. He worked for the Granada Television Network. Okay. Uh, one of the main anchors on a regional news program called mm-hmm. Granada Reports. Okay. Um, he was also the host of a show called So It Goes. And that was a variety show with a focus on music, culture, and events. Okay. So... Um, his involvement with the record label and music in general sort of stem from his involvement. And so it goes, but really right. the catalyst for all that was a certain gig, mm-hmm. the Sex Pistols played, uh, their first time playing in Manchester at the Lesser Free Trade Hall in June of 76. Okay. So this show would prove to be quite seminal Despite the fact that roughly 40 people attended, mm-hmm. it was uh, an assembly of some pretty interesting characters. Okay. So you had in attendance uh, members of the Buzzcocks. Okay. Who organized the show. Right. They were supposed to play, but they weren't ready. Right. So they didn't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they just hadn't practiced? <laughs> no, they just weren't ready yet. All right. <laughs> um, we should try that next time we have a gig. 
Yeah, turns out I'm not ready, guys. So this is not play. Yeah, we're just not gonna play. We're not gonna play. Sorry. Yeah, and it's punk. Yeah, so it's okay. Which I mean, we'll be here, but we're not gonna play. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, kind of weird. <laughs> so uh, also, uh, you had members of uh, a band called Stiff Kittens. Yep, they would go on to be called Warsaw. Okay, and eventually Joy Division. Hey, okay. So they're hanging out. Stiff Kittens, taking it all in. No idea. Yeah. Uh, members of the band The Fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, Morrissey was there. Okay. Uh, record producer Martin Hannitz. We'll okay. talk about him later. Sure. And Tony Wilson was there. Okay. So Wilson, who despised the progressive and arena rock of the 70s, mm-hmm. described the concert experience as nothing short of an epiphany. Okay. So shortly there, thereafter, he booked the Sex Pistols to perform on So It Goes mm-hmm. on the final episode of the first series. This was more than likely uh, many thousands of Britons Britain's yeah. first exposure to punk music right. How did, via their TV. <laughs> a program like So It Goes, yeah. booking a band like the Sex Pistols, yeah. that went that went well, did it? It did. Oh, okay, cool. Oh, yeah, it wasn't a, like a replacements kind of thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, Listen to that episode. That was a disaster. That was a disaster. Yeah, okay. No, they just played They knew and, what they were getting. Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, check out this new form of music. It's great. Because I'm thinking uh, it conjures, uh, what was the... British talk show, Nirvana played on it. Oh, uh, uh, when they, um, yeah, they basically, they did the, he did that death rock voice. Yeah. For I think so. Spirit. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. no, they, the funny thing about punk rock is at least in its initial, like the, the first, first wave yep. was even though it, it was rough and, you know, raw mm-hmm. and, offensive like right. i think the goals for a lot of these bands definitely the sex pistols was to make it big okay fair enough and you know make a lot of money and the the sort of like diy thing i think came a little later with the hardcore movement gotcha. especially in america okay but you know so yeah but you can I, i'm pretty sure that's on youtube and stuff like oh, okay just well, well sex pistols so it goes take a look and we'll post a link um so yeah they he had them on the show and this sort of lit a fire under wilson's ass to Get involved in the punk scene. Okay. Um, he's particularly inspired by a local to Manchester punk label called Rabid Records. Okay. So with help from future Joy Division band manager Rob Gretton and record producer Martin Hannett, mm-hmm. both of whom were at the Sex Pistols show, yep. uh, Tony Wilson and Alan Erasmus Ar- uh, founded Factory Records in January of 1978. Awesome. There you go. Now, I'm not sure if their initial plan was to be a record label because they didn't start in with that from the get-go. What they what they started off with was actually um, having a night, mm-hmm. uh, pr- like promoting bands at a club. Okay. So every, say, probably Friday or Saturday, they would yep. have a night called The Factory. Oh, okay, so more like promoters at this point. Yeah, so they're just <clears throat> okay. showing the showcasing the bands that they're they're into. Did and, they? They but they called themselves Factory Records from the beginning. I, yeah, okay. I think it was just like Factory or the Factory or Factory Records. Sure. I mentioned it was Factory was the sort of gotcha the name. Yeah. Um. So uh, the the yeah the 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 plan was to promote local bands and the bands they were into local to Manchester. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Uh, so in the, the, the initial night included, uh, the Daruti column, 
okay. uh, band managed by, at the time, by Wilson and Erasmus, mm-hmm. and uh, Joy Division okay. were managed by Rob Gretton, who may or may not have been called Joy Division then. They might have still been called Warsaw. Okay. Doesn't matter. Not Stiff Kittens, though, anymore. No, no longer Stiff Kittens. Uh, Peter Seville was brought in as an in-house artist. Um, now, yeah, I should mention there is a, a great movie mm-hmm. Uh, a biopic yeah. about this whole scene. It's called 24 yeah. hour party people. Okay. Uh, Steve Coogan plays Tony Wilson. Okay. It's one of my favorite movies. <laughs> awesome. It's really good. And I'm a big um, Steve Coogan fan. Yeah, me too. So it's not a great reference point. I don't think because okay. I think any biopic particularly about anything to do with the rock world yeah. is dubious at best. Yeah. And they even mention it in the movie. Like, Steve Coogan as Tony Wilson yeah. says flat out, like if you're gonna if you're gonna decide between, you know, the fact or the myth, print the myth because it's more interesting. Right, right, right. Fair enough. So I'm not I am gonna mention the movie a few times. I'm it's definitely not gospel. Gotcha. But there is a scene at the inaugural factory club night where Peter Seville shows up to the show mm-hmm. with the posters for the show. Yeah. <laughs> on the night of the show yeah yeah good, and good. like what are you doing these are yeah. useless yeah. and he's like well I just couldn't get the right yellow so <laughs> whether or not that happened it's okay. I think it's meant to be sort of uh, uh, it shines a light on the fact that he did have a lot of trouble meeting deadlines in lieu right. of getting the artwork just right so, okay um, bit of a perfectionist bit of a perfectionist gotcha. and just mm, part of the how Factory Records was run and I was run a little bit like a disaster. Foreshadowing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine posters is not where it ends. (laughs) (laughs) Not quite. Um, So before I move on to like sort of the big points, uh, also worth mentioning is Factory Records had a very interesting sort of numbering system. Okay. Meaning like, you know, when you look on the spine of records, your CDs or your albums, it usually has a little indicator, like say the first... Fact record would say like FAC 001. Yeah, yeah. They would not limit these numbers to strictly releases. Okay. They could be uh, pinned to anything from uh, television appearances or merch or oh. when they eventually had a website that yeah. had a number. Okay. Um, there was a bet yeah. between Tony Wilson and Rob Gretton okay. that got a number. Okay, <laughs> so just so just kind of anything they felt freewheeling the numbering scheme. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So, for instance, uh, the first show that Factory put on as the Factory yep. was Fac One. Good. This is go. going to be a headache. It's going to be a huge headache. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you don't want to go down that hole. No, you don't. It's uh, it's long. Yep. <clears throat> Sorry. Right. So, part one. Okay. Joy Division. Part one. Uh, they too performed on So It Goes okay. in September 78, mm-hmm. thanks in no small part to lead singer Ian Curtis berating Tony Wilson for not yet having them on his show <laughs> the first time they ever met. Okay. <laughs> so they're off to a good start. Great, yeah. Um, I imagine Tony Wilson was probably like, oh, I like this guy. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, so <laughs> More Jordan- bands should yell their way onto television. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, it worked. Um... So Joy Division contributed uh, two tracks to the very first Factory release, that mm-hmm. being uh, a compilation album. Okay. Um, for this, they got much praise from the UK music press. Okay. And Joy Division joined Factory Records officially at this point with 
manager Rob Gretton being made an official label partner right. uh, to represent the interests of the band. Right. Uh, December 1978, on a drive home from a gig, Ian Curtis suffered his first recognized epileptic seizure Oof. and was hospitalized. Uh, meanwhile, the band's career progressed. Mm -hmm. uh, Curtis appeared on the January 79 cover of NME, oh, yeah. British yep. magazine, yep. of some notes. <clears throat> uh, they did uh, a, a session for BBC One Radio with John Peel, mm -hmm. so things are going good. Yep. Uh, Unknown Pleasures, their debut album. Mm -hmm. And artwork, which has been on T-shirts of late and yeah. bastardized in yeah, yeah. many different Spoofed. ways. <laughs> Spoofed and, and back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, that's their debut album. It was recorded in April of 1979 with Martin Hannett producing. Okay. Uh, so <clears throat> Martin Hannett apparently had a, a bit of a reputation for mm. being a real curmudgeon okay. and a perfectionist. Mm. And it was sort of his way or the highway. Right. Um, he apparently significantly altered the band's sound during these sessions. Mm. And there's a big scene in the movie, mm -hmm. 24 hour party people where he's sort of like, I want to take apart the drum kit and I want right. to do this and yeah. you know, whether or not that happened. Right, right. Um, it's, it's sort of confirmed that he, like he did a lot of stuff that okay. just ch really changed their sound. Was this also the guy with the posters or is this somewhere else? No. Okay. Peter Seville is the artist. Okay. Martin gotcha. Hannes, the producer. Gotcha. 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 Um, so yeah, uh, the band at the time were displeased with the changes he had made. Right. Uh, retrospectively, they would admit that Martin had it had created the Joy Division sound, which okay. is you know much loved yeah. around the world. Yeah, 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 for sure. So at the time, like, ugh. Yeah. So this is kind of funny. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. it is very. I mean, you hear that album. It like nothing really iconic. Oh yeah, yeah, it's iconic. Nothing really sounds like it unless bands are. Specifically, trying to sound after like it, it. Yeah, but yeah, at for the sure. time, I I can't imagine. Like, wow, listen yeah. to this. Still frustrating though to have someone come <clears throat> in and be like, of course, yeah, you guys, you guys are doing good things. Let me make everything about it better for you. Yeah, it's like what do you and by that different and play everything differently. Yeah. and you're doing everything wrong. But I thought it was. I thought you wanted to. Work who would with who me. would react well to that? Like, <laughs> yeah. oh, I can see the big picture here. Yeah, you're yeah, right. right. <clears throat> Probably not. Nope. So the album was released in June of that year, mm -hmm. and it sold through its initial pressing of 10,000 copies pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, Tony Wilson said the success of this album turned the indie label into a true business mm -hmm. and a revolutionary force that operated outside of the major label system. Right. Uh, more success followed. Uh, TV appearances and touring singles released. Blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. uh, they toured Europe in January of 1980. Right. And despite a demanding schedule, Ian Curtis experienced only two grand mal seizures. Okay. However, his condition would steadily worsen uh, due to long hours and lack of sleep. Uh, yeah. He, yeah. Not good. Tour is not good for the health. No. If you don't have a health condition. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're feeling rough anyway. Yeah. Uh, he often had seizures during performances. Um not necessarily always grand mal sometimes. Mm. I think there's like a a kind of seizure where you just sort of disassociate. Okay, yeah. And stare. Sounds, yeah. Uh, people would mistake this as being part of his act. Right, which yeah. Which if you've seen him perform, he just would do these crazy robot moves. And yeah. Kind of spastic. And so understandably, like, oh, okay. That He's, is... Actually, mini sidebar, kind of terrifying. I was listening to a podcast <clears throat> recently with uh, an interview with Aubrey Plaza. I oh, didn't yeah. know that she had uh, from Parks and Rec and stuff. Yeah. 
I didn't know that she has a history of seizures. And apparently the first she didn't like the first time she ever had a seizure uh-huh. was with her friends. And she's all like she's a comedian, always goofing off with her yeah, friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she started having a seizure, like couldn't start slurring her words, couldn't talk, right. like started losing a feeling in her face. And everybody's like, What are you doing, idiot? Yeah, yeah, shut like, up. Good bit. <laughs> that's terrifying. Yeah, that's thinking that like going having a seizure and someone's being like, Oh, he is like on another level. <laughs> yeah. like, no guys, I, I need medical I need attention. Help, please. Yeah. I'm about to bite my tongue off. Yeah. Okay, that's anyway. Yeah, so yeah. that was happening. Uh the seizures left him feeling ashamed and depressed. Okay. Uh that March they recorded their second album, Closer or Closer. I don't know what it is. Right. Probably closer. Uh again with Martin. I always Han- say closer in my mind. Closer? Yeah. Closer. Yeah. Not closer. No, not closer. <laughs> closer is a different. Wasn't there a show called Closer? Closer. Then there's a movie. Closure. There's a there's a show called Closer about someone who was oh, good at the closing closer. the closer. <laughs> but then at the same time, a movie came out called Closer. Closer. And when people tell me about the show called The Closer, I thought they were talking about the movie Closer. <laughs> you mean Closer? With Natalie oh, Portman. The closer. Oh, Natalie Natalie Portman. I thought thought it was a romantic. Non-comedy. Non- Closer. Anyway. Closer. Ah. Whatever. Whatever. Is so, it closer or closer? Tweet at us. Tweet at us. <laughs> it's probably closer. It's closer. Uh, so Even closer. Once again, uh, Martin Hannett's producing, and again, the band were initially displeased with the results. Right. Like, ah, oh, not this again. Great. So. Hadn't learned their lesson? <laughs> guess not. <laughs> he was just the guy. Like, he produced a lot of the bands at the time, so. Mm-hmm. Um, Ian Curtis attempted suicide in April of 1980 by overdosing on his anti-seizure meds. Mm. Uh, the band were scheduled to commence their first American tour in May of 1980. The evening before the band were due to depart for the States, Ian Curtis hung himself. Ugh. May 18th, 1980. Uh, in 2005... Tony Wilson said of Curtis' suicide, I think all of us made the mistake of not thinking his suicide was going to happen. We all completely underestimated the danger. We didn't take it seriously. Mm-hmm. That's how stupid we were. Jeez. Yeah. Which, you know, youth. I mean. Yeah. And that, a lot of times that kind of thing's hard to, there's also a different era. Like, you know, there's still a lot of stigma attached to mental health issues. Of course. Even more so then. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. So you just kind of things you don't talk about. You don't talk about it. And how do you know when to take the plunge and intervene yeah. and, and, you know. That's too bad. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Joy Division became New Order okay. with uh, guitarist Bernard Sumner moving over to lead vocals mm-hmm. and Gillian Gilbert joining on keyboards and mm-hmm. second guitar. Uh, New Order spent their initial period living in the shadow of Joy Division, but they quickly found success with a more upbeat kind of dance-infused sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their single, Blue Monday. Yep. uh, Huge success. Mm. Definitely one of the most successful 12-inch singles. Right. Um, Great for all involved, except Factory Records, who lost 5P for every copy sold. What? Because the artwork was more expensive than oh, your typical, like it was like a gatefold <laughs> right. and you want to be fancy, like three color. But, so, oh, <laughs> but it looked great, right? Uh, in typical Factory Records fashion, their yeah. attitude was, "We're not going to sell fuck all, so yeah. Yeah. it's not going to make a difference." Yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> but then they release Blue Monday. <laughs> yeah, who knew? Damn it! <laughs> so, part two. Ugh. <laughs> The Hacienda. Okay. 
Hacienda was a nightclub and music venue in Manchester, opened in 1982 mm -hmm. by the Factory Records crew. Mm -hmm. And incidentally, it was FAC 51. Oh. Their numbering system. Oh, fuck. <laughs> so the club gets a number. <laughs> Guys, you got to stop handing out numbers. Oh. It's going to get confused. Do you have a stop, spreadsheet? Like, is someone keeping track? <laughs> someone did. I've seen it. It's ridiculous. Okay. <laughs> um, so it was originally conceived by Rob Gretton. Uh, and it was largely financed by Factory Records along with New Order and Tony Wilson putting up their own cash. Mm -hmm. um, uh, again, back to the movie, there's a scene where they all kind of walk in and there's then to, for the first time yep. and uh, someone says like, well, what did it cost to to get this? Yep. And, and Rob Gretton says 700 grand, mm -hmm. uh, at which point uh, Martin Hannett, who I should mention is played by Andy Serkis. Oh, wow. In one of maybe his only roles where he's not animated. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he's great in this role. Awesome. I, he's kind of unrecognizable. But What year good. is this movie? Uh, like 2000-ish. Okay. Relatively. Early 2000s. I was about to say relatively recent, but that's 20 years ago now. Yeah, exactly. Okay, fair uh, enough. Yeah. So his, his response to 700 grand is, well... You'll never see me again. We have different goals, obviously. <laughs> right. Fuck you. Goodbye. Okay. Fair <laughs> and, enough. And, and he leaves. Yeah. Whether or not this happened like that, at yeah. the time, there was a falling out between Hannon and Factory Records. Mm -hmm. uh, in 1982, there was a lawsuit, um, I don't know, involving what. Sure. Uh, it was eventually settled out, settled out of court. Mm -hmm. Incidentally, that lawsuit yeah. was Fact 61. <laughs> <laughs> So for, let's say, a number of reasons, Martin Hannett breaks ties with Factory Records. Love the idea of them, like, setting up an office and just going through and, like, every piece of stationery. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so. I think stationery had a number. I'm not joking. Can you pass me Fact 70? What? <laughs> the stapler. The, <laughs> the whiteout. <laughs> um so the Hacienda, uh, a wide range of acts would perform there. Uh, everyone from the Smiths right. to Madonna oh. to Einstein Neubauten. Hey, we heard about them oh, we heard about in episode in a, two. Yeah, that's right. Bomber Blitz in Bomber New York Blitz. City. <laughs> yeah. Um, despite that fact, though, um, the focus was still on the local bands, the Manchester right. bands, and the factory bands. Yep. So, Well, you got to pay for the deep cuts, right? Exactly. So you get your Madonnas so you can have your Manchesters. Yeah, exactly. Bands. But you That's mostly true. got your Manchesters. Oh, okay. So on one hand, it was thought of as a rather hot spot that people wanted to play. Yeah. But the, most of the bands that got booked, like the chances are you were going to go see Derudi Column mm -hmm. and A Certain Ratio okay. on a Tuesday, right. which... Now people love that stuff. At the time, it was kind of like, eh. Right. Okay. So uh, attendance was often middling at best. Oh. Uh, this coupled with the high cost of rent, maintenance, yeah. et cetera, 10K a month. Okay. Uh, meant that most of New Order's earnings from their success was being swallowed up by the club. Hmm. <clears throat> Great. Uh, around 1986, it became one of the first British clubs to feature house music. Okay. With DJs Mike Pickering and Little Martin All right. hosting a dance night every Friday called Nude. No. Uh, risque. Risque. 
hot and saucy. That's how you get through the door. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Gross. Uh, <laughs> This night quickly gained popularity and helped turn the fortunes of the Hacienda, mm -hmm. which went from making a consistent loss monthly to being full every night of the week hey, by okay. early 1987. Awesome. So, boom. Um, this was a crucial compo component in giving rise to the so-called Madchester scene, okay. which basically served as ground zero, arguably, mm -hmm. I would say, for rave culture. Hey, okay. So... I'm assuming, I don't know too much about that, but I'm going to venture a guess that like, you know, the argument, like where did punk start? Oh, yeah. New York, no, it's yeah. in London. Yeah. I'm sure there's an argument about where the, where rave culture right. and that kind of thing started. But I think the overarching consensus is that Manchester. Okay. That's interesting. Thanks to Factory always, Records. I always find it interesting, like how electronic music's roots, how far back they go. Right. Like, you know, they had a house music night in 87, you were saying? Yeah. That's like, for me, house music is still, because I, I listen to it still, mm. it's like a fairly modern thing. Yeah. But then I was thinking the other day, one of my favorite authors, uh, Irvin Welsh, he wrote a book yeah. um, about, I uh, forget the title now, but he wrote a book about one of the characters, he, like he's a DJ in like the trance scene. Is but it, it takes- a house or? No. So you uh, were train spotting, right? Yeah, he wrote train spotting <clears throat> and then and the sequel was porno. Yeah. And then- uh, I can't remember now. It's okay. one of his one of his thick books. It's yellow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, <clears throat> but yeah, he was like a trance DJ, and that, but that took place in like maybe the early nineties. Oh yeah, and well, like was... late eighties, and it's like I don't know. That always surprises me because it still it seems like such a modern genre for me. But I guess maybe I'm guessing it just stems from disco. Yeah, which is seventies, yeah. and it yeah. just kind of goes from there. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. That would be a good uh, a good uh, rabbit hole to disappear down. Yeah, I have not yet done it. Okay, but well, I should. stay tuned. I'm sure we will. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, rave culture. Uh, basically, yeah. it was a fusion of alt rock and dance music with healthy doses of funk and psychedelia. Okay. Is what was going on. Cool. Uh, however, mm. drug use, All right. which predictably would have been prevalent at, you know, a scene which... Drugs at raves. Drugs at no. raves. With all night parties. What are you talking about? The glow sticks are cool <clears throat> on their own. <laughs> So it soon became a problem. Okay. Uh, the rise of rave culture also gave rise to the popularity of MDMA hmm. or ecstasy. Right. Uh, 1989 saw the first ecstasy-related death occur at the club when 16-year-old Claire Layton collapsed and died after her boyfriend gave her a tab of E. Hmm. Um, I didn't know you could overdose, but... On ecstasy? On ecstasy, but I guess it is a, like a stimulant. So yeah. yeah, yeah, I could see just, that. Your heart could pop. Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah. So the club became a big sort of heat score with the the local police oh, after yeah. this incident. Right, that'll do it. Uh, yeah. Uh, this obviously didn't help matters, but m probably the biggest drug-related problem for the club mm. was the fact that people were showing up to dance and yeah. spending almost no money on alcohol. Right. Since they, <laughs> they all wanted to be on drugs. Damn it. So, um Wait, could they have started selling drugs? No, that's crazy. That's like a line right from the movie. Like, we Is couldn't it? sell drugs at the bar, although right. we did talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. This is really funny. Yeah, that's good. Um, so the club's not doing so great. The drug dealers, meanwhile, are cleaning up. Right. Um, and often within the confines of the club. Yeah. Which resulted in more than a few instances of drug and gang-related violence, mm. shootings, mm. and whatnot. Mm. So... 
the club eventually closed its doors its doors in 1997 okay um which actually we'll we'll come back to that but okay. we'll leave it we'll leave the hacienda there fair enough we'll move on to part 3 okay the happy mondays all right Happy Mondays were a band formed mm -hmm. in 1980. Okay. They signed a factory in 1985 after passing their demo tape to Hacienda DJ Mike Pickering. Okay. Uh, they were a fusion of indie rock, funk, soul, psychedelic, and house music. They perfectly sort of am amalgamated the up-and-coming Madchester scene okay. with their sound. Right, okay. So they kind of predicted it in a yeah. way. Yeah. Um, and they uh, predicted this scene even further with their own 24-hour party people. That's a song of theirs. Oh, okay. Uh, lifestyle. All right. So in particular, band member Mark Bez Berry, okay. who served on stage as the dancer Maraca player. <laughs> Everyone... Just, Need something, <laughs> yeah. I guess. Wasn't His band role, he was like a Flavor Flav, basically. Well, like, wasn't like, to be fair, wasn't uh, Keith's role in Prodigy early on just to be on stage dancing around? And oh, they, yeah. And he didn't start singing until... Like, well, they had another dancer, didn't they? Yeah, like, they do. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the other... Uh, did or do, yeah. I, I at the, at the, 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 the sort of their height of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But yeah, I mean, not unlike those guys, except this guy didn't do any vocals. Fair enough. He was just sort of getting the crowd going. Gotcha. Um... Offstage, however, he was the de facto drug dealer, oh, okay. keeping all concerned, well-stocked in E. That's why he gets to play That's maracas why he gets on stage. Like here. <laughs> <laughs> Put these in your hands and shake them. There's nothing in these. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Shake them. Shake them. <laughs> <clears throat> so uh, their second album, Bummed, mm -hmm. was produced by Martin Hannett, uh, returning as a freelance producer yeah. rather than uh, a reinstated factory employee or partner. Okay. He also returned weighing approximately 300-some pounds okay. and a heroin addict and an alcoholic. So time was not fine. Time was not good. Okay. <laughs> the intervening years were rough. All right. Um, the band, according to manager Nathan Magoa, mm -hmm. went through 200 tabs of ecstasy in 10 days. What? How many <laughs> band members? <laughs> I'm going to say five or six. 200 tabs in how long? 10 days. 10 days. Okay. Uh -huh. Okay. Okay. So well, 20 that, tabs a day. Yeah. Well, actually, not. May let's say seven because uh, a portion of these were given to Martin Hannett. Okay. To keep him from binge drinking. I don't know why that's a cause and effect. Yeah, we need you. Sorrows. <laughs> we need you to be sober. Here's five <laughs> yeah. acid tabs. <laughs> Great. Focus on the spiders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. The Happy Mondays, along with New Order, were, were one of the most successful bands on the factory roster. Unfortunately, they were also by far the most volatile. Okay. Uh, by 1992, brothers Sean and Paul Ryder, mm -hmm. uh, vocals and bass, okay. respectively, yep. were both hooked on heroin. Okay. Whoops. Uh, for the recording of their fourth and what would be their final album, Yes, Please, mm -hmm. the band set up shop in Barbados, okay. where there apparently was no heroin for the the Ryder brothers to take. Right. No heroin there. Great, yeah. Not ones to be deterred, they settled on crack cocaine. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> uh, Sean well, Ryder- Well, it's not, not going to be nothing. Oh, so. yeah. <laughs> what are you, nuts? <laughs> uh, well, it wasn't supposed to be nothing, because right. Sean Ryder- did bring enough methadone to okay. last him the anticipated four weeks of recording. Right. But the case got inadvertently smashed hmm. at the Manchester airport. Damn it. So 
it survived the taxi ride there. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so bad. not good. Mm. So after running out of money in Barbados, they took to selling musical equipment mm-hmm. and bits of furniture from the studio for drug money. Okay. During their entire stay, Sean failed to write any lyrics. Okay. Okay. Good. So productive. Yeah, oh yeah. This is uh this is all on Factory Records Dime. All I was just gonna say you're sorry, way ahead of me. Sorry, I yeah. Probably going to Barbados is not free. No. So. No. no. <laughs> so Good they're paying for it. Yeah. Good. So Factory Records is going from win to win. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so upon returning to the UK, Sean got a hold of the master tapes yeah. and threatened to destroy them yeah. unless Tony Wilson and Factory Records paid for them. <laughs> okay. Uh, when Factory did finally get a hold of them for 50 pounds. All right. Not bad. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> sure. You were probably thinking a lot more. Yeah, I was. <laughs> I was. The money that they had in their wallets. <laughs> no. Uh, the recordings contained no vocals. All right. Yeah. Which made yeah. sense. Yep. You know, right. uh, which made the whole thing a farce. Mm-hmm. The whole, I'm going to destroy them. Yeah. Uh, yep. The album was eventually finished and released and it completely flopped. Okay. Uh, this was probably the biggest contributing factor, along with New Order spending two years recording their Technique album mm-hmm. in... Um, Ibiza or Ibiza? Yeah, Ibiza, Ibiza. I've heard. That place. Yeah. Uh, and the aforementioned costs of maintaining the Hacienda. But they didn't do a lot of recording when they were in Ibiza. Two years? Yeah, probably. No. Probably not working. Probably not Probably not noses to the grindstone. Doesn't seem like the kind of place that you go to not get distracted. Yeah. Yeah. Bit of a bit of a party scene? Uh, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Okay. So yeah, uh, Happy Monday's New Order, the Hacienda. This is what yep. caused Factory Records to declare bankruptcy in mm. 1992. Did they assign a number to bankruptcy? <laughs> I bet they did. <laughs> I should have checked. <laughs> um, so at the time, London Records had come along with uh, an offer to buy out Factory Records. Okay. The aim being to incorporate the back catalogs of all the acts yep. and just sort of like, you know, assimilate everything involved. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what the number is in the movie. It's 3 million pounds, but okay. you know, it's roughly, you know, something like that. Sure. This would have been a nice silver lining to an unfortunate outco- outcome. Uh, oh, you said would have been. However, factory bands were unique Okay. in that none of them had any formal contract with the label. Smart. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Why so would you need that? Why would you need that? So New Order, for example, yep. very successful band, owned all rights to their material. Right. The label would simply do a 50-50 split on profits yeah. once their costs were recouped yeah. for manufacturing, distribution, whatever. Okay. And that was the agreement. Okay. I'm not even going to say deal. There was no deal. The agreement. The handshake. Agreement, the handshake Maybe. agreement. Yeah. So no deal was made, hmm. and London ended up going to the acts themselves. Many of which found a home there. Great. So Factory Records, bankrupt. Great. Great. <laughs> so uh, I guess the moral of the story is sign contracts with your artists. That's one moral. That's one of them. Yeah. <laughs> the other one is don't open a venue that's destined to fail. That's another moral. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of morals. Don't send your drug addict band further than you can keep tabs on them to that's record a, an album. That's a big moral. Yeah, that's a big one. That might be that's the probably big moral. one. Yeah, okay. Um, but that's basically the end of the story. Um, wow. I think, and I, I, it's sort of, you know, it ended 
gloriously in, in yeah. a glorious disaster, yeah. but in its wake, so many well, iconic yeah. musical, like, you know, signposts are right. s- still standing. It's just, yeah, it's everyone got a great deal out of it, except for the, the, yeah. the guys that, Oh, that's you such know, a bummer. Kind of ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> like on in uh, out of this firing wreck, like safety rolls, Joy Division. Yeah. <laughs> and the New Order. <laughs> Blue Monday. Blue Monday. Like, <laughs> raves. Yeah. Yeah, not bad. So uh let's see. Let's do a little roundup here. Uh yep. Martin Hannett died of a heart attack in nineteen ninety one. Oh. So a fairly young man. Yeah. But, you know, he lived rough. Uh, yeah. Rob Gretton died in 1999, also okay. of a heart attack. Oh. Tony Wilson, unfortunately, also died of a heart attack brought on by complications linked to renal cancer hmm. in 2007 okay. at age 57. Man. His casket was numbered FAC 501. Are you serious? <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> Prankster to the end. Wow. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Yeah, I like yeah. it. Uh, he's a very interesting character and, yeah. and, and you get the sense that none of these setbacks really affected him. I think he was yeah, more interested in, you know, the bigger picture yeah, and the effect that this music had. It was never really about I could see that. the money, yeah. the success that comes and goes. Like he was directly involved in some pretty, pretty legendary stuff. So. Yeah. Like I wonder, I wonder how many of the people involved in factory records would see themselves as a disaster. You know what I mean? Like oh, it's, it's kind of like you, you look at it and you're like, yeah, this guys, this could have gone a lot better for you. <laughs> but if like, it could come out pretty good. It could be like one of those labels where it's like genuinely all about the music. I so, think that was, yeah. that was, that was it. Yeah. Like it was more of an experiment than a, than a, than a business. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Legit <laughs> awesome. business. Wow. So yeah, factory records yeah. and, uh, any, I could have picked any number of songs. Right, I mean, there's You've got so a many good ones. Rich catalog. Yeah, so I just went with one that's one of my favorites. It's uh, New Order. Mm-hmm. The song is called Age of Consent. Okay. It's from their second album, yep. uh, Power, Corruption, and Lies. Okay. It's the first track on that album. Yep. It came out in 1983. Sweet. Fantastic. I think it's their best album. Right. I love that song. Sweet. Check it out. Well, you're probably hearing it right now. I think so. Well, that was a tragic Tuesday. <laughs> Thanks, Lee. No problem. Um, yeah, so if, if you like what you hear, uh, let us know. You can get in touch uh, on our social medias, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at This Disaster Pod. Uh, maybe let us know what your favorite Joy Division song is or your favorite New Order song. Please do. Um, you can also uh, catch us live if you are in Ottawa uh, on August 24th. We're taking part in the auto first, I think the first ever Ottawa Podcast Festival. Yeah. You can get all the details at www.ottawapodcastfestival.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's at Live on Elgin on August 24th, I think I already mentioned. And yep. I think we're going on around 3.30, but you should go for all the acts because uh, there's a lot of good podcasts in Ottawa. Definitely. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's all I had. Lee, anything to add? Thanks so much for listening and tune in next week for another disaster. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Lee. That was great. Good job. <laughs> Peter's the host. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.